Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today to celebrate God's providence in history, not just within the Reformation, but within our lives. As I look across a congregation of those who have been filled with the Word of God and responded by faith in Jesus Christ. Today, we consider the treasure of the gospel. As you've heard mentioned this morning already, Martin Luther nailed a a piece of paper to a door in Wittenberg on October the 31st, 1517. It was a flashpoint of Reformation. In that document, there is a, a line, a thesis, that is of profound truth for us this morning. It reads, the true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. The true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. Martin Luther, other men like Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, and others sought to reform the church from any number of practices and doctrines that had come to threaten the gospel. Like fool's gold in a treasure chest contaminate its treasure, these practices and doctrines were threatening to contaminate the treasure of the gospel within the church. Whether it was the practice of simony, that is the selling of church offices to those that were not qualified for them, or a doctrine of salvation that says, do your best and God will do the rest, or the elevation of church tradition above the authority of the scriptures, or possibly popes and priests who demanded celibacy, but on the side kept mistresses and illegitimate children tucked away. Or perhaps the failure to provide the scriptures in a form, in a language that the people could actually understand and receive. Or as Luther railed against in his 95 Theses, the indulgences that offered merit to, to, people, to persons for the sake of money apart from the condition of their heart. Against all of these, the reformers sought to remove the fool's gold from the treasure chest of the church. And they sought to keep in it only that treasure, the holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Now the threat against the gospel and the task of separating the fool's gold from its true treasure is not unique with the reformers. And we do not gather here this morning to celebrate the reformers themselves. We gather here this morning to celebrate the providence of God in protecting this word of truth throughout the ages. In fact, God did this in the Colossian church through the Apostle Paul as he came against false teachings that were like fool's gold trying to contaminate the treasure of the gospel. False teachers were peddling this false treasure in the form of new systems of thinking and human traditions. They were setting within its chest plastic jewelry like physical disciplines and mystical experiences. Paul's aim 
was to keep then centered on what the true treasure was. So today we celebrate how our great God, the Lord of history, has preserved the treasure of his gospel against all perversion. Today we seek to remove the fool's gold that has invaded our hearts and sought to displace the true treasure. Our title for today's message is Reformed by the Word of Christ for the Glory of God. If you have your copy of the Lord's Word, would you open to Colossians chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17 will be our focus, but we're going to read beginning in verse 12. And I'll remind you that Paul has already rehearsed the gospel and the Christ of that gospel quite thoroughly to this point in the book of Colossians. He is He's rehearsed with, with high and lofty rhetoric the preeminence of Christ and called the Colossians desperately to cling only to Him. And in light of the Colossians' union with Christ, He is now moved to telling them how to live in light of this. He's told them to put to death the sinful desires within them. And in this section, He tells them what they are to put on. So if you would, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let us pray. Father, we come to you today thankful for your grace. We marvel at the grace you have shown us. We thank you for your word and ask that you help us by your spirit to let it dwell deeply within us. Help us to see and savor the excellency of Christ through this word. Help us to so treasure him and his word in our fellowship here as a church and in our worship together as saints, that our lives both in corporate gathering and in scattering to all of life will be lived in his name, the name of Jesus, for your glory. Be magnified in us, O Lord. Amen. You may be seated.
Now, situated within the larger context of Colossians, this passage helps us see that God has called the church out of the world through the proclamation of Christ and continually reforms His church by the means of Christ-centered fellowship and Christ-centered worship so that her members will glorify Christ and the world. In other words, the same gospel message of the preeminent Christ who died and victoriously rose for our redemption, this message of hope and peace centered on Christ's person and work, this gospel has called us into one body, and it is to dwell in us richly, not just as individuals, but as a corporate body. It is to qualify every activity of our individual lives, but it is also to qualify every activity of our corporate life. And all of this is solely Deo Gloria, to God's glory alone. We have three points today, and the first is simply this, that the word of Christ in the world creates the church. The word of Christ in the world creates the church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What is the word of Christ? This, this phrase may seem unique to us. The phrase could refer to the scriptures in general. It could refer per, perhaps to a, a specific teaching of Jesus, a commandment, if you will. But with Calvin, I think he got a ride when he saw this word of Christ as the doctrine of the gospel. And we think that, and I see this uh, for a few reasons. First of all, Paul uses two other phrases that are similar within the book. The first is word of truth, which Paul then immediately defines as the gospel. And the second is the word of God. Now, oftentimes that refers us to the whole of God's word. But here, Paul says in verse 23 of chapter 1, that he has become a minister of the gospel and then goes on to describe the heart of this gospel ministry. He says it is to make the word of God fully known. And what is this word? Well, he goes on to tell us the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here we see that the word of Christ is the gospel. Having set this context, we may ask also, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is simply this. It's the good news of God's salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's much more we could say. But all hopes of salvation hang on Jesus Christ. And only insofar as we hang on to Him by faith, enabled by the Spirit, will we have salvation. All hopes hang on the fact that Jesus, being fully God, has represented God to man, and being fully man, born of a virgin, has represented man before the Father In chapter 1, Paul sings the praise of Jesus Christ 
verses 15 through 22, it rings with the divine majesty of Christ, and they bleed with his humanity. Listen with me. For in him, beginning in verse 19, for in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Here is humanity making peace by the blood of his cross. The good news for unholy, unrighteous people like you and I is that we are not eternally separated from God without a mediator. Christ, by his cross, has made salvation available to all who will believe. Because of his death for our sins and resurrection from the dead, we have the hope of eternal life through faith and repentance in his name. And he is able to save to the uttermost. This is the gospel. But here's the point I want us to get within our message today. This word of Christ, this gospel, is moving throughout the whole world and is creating the church. In Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8, we see this. The word of truth, the gospel, Paul writes, has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. In the next verse, we see that the Colossians received or learned the gospel from a faithful messenger, Epaphras. And thankfully for us, the word of Christ, the gospel, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. In other words, the Holy Spirit, even in Paul's day, had taken the gospel message and gone public with it. He was publishing it through the church and its heralds throughout the ends of the, of the earth. So now we see a church that sits around us and before us as the gospel made visible. It is this good news that has gone out and now producing within us a fellowship. We might say the gospel is the womb through which the church has been born by the Spirit. And as we remember the reformers, they're helpful here. Timothy George rightly notes, for the reformers, the gospel creates the church, not the other way around. The church is the child, not the owner of the gospel. It is God's word to us. And it must be given freedom to work within us. So here again, in Colossians chapter 3, he is calling them to hold fast to the good news of the incarnate Christ, crucified for our sins, risen again, victorious over sin, death, and the devil, and to let it rule and dwell richly in them, not, not to let competing philosophies, human traditions, ascetic practices, or mystical experiences displace this gospel. Let us hear the word this morning of Christ and let it dwell richly in us. So this word that is to dwell richly in us has created the church, but we also see that this word of Christ in the church reforms her fellowship. The word of Christ in the church 
reforms her fellowship. Again in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Here there's a command. Let the word of Christ, that is the gospel, dwell in you richly. That is the word of Christ, the mystery of God's word, the word of truth, the gospel is to dwell in us richly. The word dwell points us to think of the fact that the word of Christ, the gospel, is to take up permanent residence within us. Christ has become a permanent resident in our heart, speaking to us, reminding us of whose we are and how we are to live. He pairs with it the word richly. It is to dwell richly, that is abundantly. It is to have a deep, penetrating, affecting presence in us. In the previous verse, Paul said to let the the peace of Christ rule in your hearts just as you were called in one body. We see some similarities of construction. Let the word of Christ, let the peace of Christ. In the same way, the, the word of Christ is to have a governing place in us. It is to rule us. It is to rule our fellowship with one another. In Ephesians 5, a parallel passage, we we see Paul speaking in similar terms about a controlling indwelling there. Listen with me for some similarities with our own text. Ephesians 5, verses, verses 18 and following. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but... Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. These passages are quite similar. In Ephesians, the controlling indweller is the Spirit. And in our text, in Colossians, the controlling indweller is the Word. Is Paul confused? (laughs) No. Paul is helping us see. He interchanges the two because we cannot be governed by the Spirit unless the Word dwells richly within us. And we cannot let the Word dwell richly within us apart from His Spirit. This is not an individual endeavor. This is not something we work up on our own. We do this by the aid of the Holy Spirit, these two working together in us, bringing about the glory of God. We must also note, this is not, and as I said before, this is not an individual endeavor. Again, looking back to just the previous verse, Paul is talking about how the peace of Christ has called us together in one body. The you in our verse, verse 16, is plural. Now, it's certain that each one of us are called to let the word of Christ dwell within us richly, in our prayer closets, in our studies, as we drive to and from work, as we drop the kids off at school. Every part of our life is to be saturated with the word of God, but it does not stop there. Paul is concerned that their fellowship He's concerned their worship has been contaminated. He's concerned their worship has become untethered from its center, namely the gospel. 
What are their conversations gathered around? What is it that makes them stick together? What is it that gives them unity? It is not common affinities. It is not common uh, life experiences apart from the gospel. This is what saturates their conversation. This is what draws them together as a body. So we, as Redeemer Church, as a local expression of the body of Christ, are called to let the word of Christ take a a permanent residence among us, to be rich in us, to be abundant in our fellowship, and that it would have governing authority over us in everything. This word of the gospel has formed our fellowship. It is also to reform our fellowship continually. The word of Christ leads us to forsake all other words and centers for our fellowship. It leads us to forsake all other words and centers for our worship together. And it centers them all, fixes them all upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But how? How are we to let this happen in our fellowship? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in the second half of the verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, hear this, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You might, on first observation, think there are two means through which Paul is seeking to let us, uh, let the word of Christ dwell richly within us, within our fellowship. Our eyes are immediately drawn to teaching and admonition. But in actuality, he gives us three. Teaching, admonishing, and singing. We'll take them in turn. They are to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, teaching and admonishing in all wisdom. The teaching and admonishing are closely connected and they're both instructive. Teaching being the positive side of instruction and correction, uh, admonition or warning being the negative. The word for teaching is not unfamiliar to us. Jesus said, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The same word here. Admonishing means to rebuke or warn. And Paul's used this word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where he says, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idol." Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So we see that such warning is always out of love and brotherly concern. And there's a balance between teaching and admonishing. Just as parents are called not only to discipline their children, they're called to instruct them as well. We as brothers and sisters in Christ are to teach and admonish one another. We are to warn one another as brothers and sisters in Christ so that the root of bitterness would not spring up in our heart. Imagine if you only breathed in air and never breathed out. We know that we would die if that happened. In the same way, our fellowship with one another will die if we are not actively 
breathing in and breathing out in the activities of teaching and admonishment. We need both. We need to participate in both. These words are not merely for the leadership of the church. These words are given to the body. And as we do this, we do it in all wisdom. Both teaching and admonishing are done in all wisdom. And this word wisdom refers us to the manner. How do we go about this? How are we carrying it out? What is it like? Simply put, it means that we offer teaching and admonishment in appropriate and matched ways to the situation and to the individual. We don't merely throw words at people. We don't shoot gospel bullets at people. We have not done our gospel duty if we merely drop a cliche on our brother or sister in their weakness. We note also here in Colossians that this wisdom that we need for this task is a gift of God. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul doesn't just merely tell them that they are to act wisely. He prays it for them. He recognizes that God works this kind of wisdom into them. And it is found in Christ alone in chapter 2, verse 3. Christ is the source of wisdom, for it is in him that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. The source of this teaching and admonishing with all wisdom, or its pattern, if you will, is the word of Christ, for it is the word that we are seeking to let indwell us. And as it does, it produces wise teaching and admonishment. And it has as a specific goal maturity in Christ. Paul has used both of these words early in the letter in chapter 128. He says, Him, that is Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, and here's the goal, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's goal in his teaching and admonishment is to be our goal. It is to reform us to the image of Christ. If we don't have this as our purpose, we will be sure to destroy our brother and sister and lay them low and show them only condemnation and not grace. So we've taken teaching and admonishment together. What about our third means of letting the word dwell richly in our fellowship? Paul says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul hasn't moved on to something else. He's still talking about letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And this singing has a distinctive content, manner, and object. Distinctive content in that it is psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, there isn't much agreement among commentators about the specific nuances of these words. In fact, this kind of disagreement has gone back at least to the Reformation. 
in which we find men like John Calvin or John Knox saying that the church is to give priority to psalms only and that hymns and spiritual songs are simply descriptions of psalms. And so they went through the Reformation singing only the psalms without musical accompaniment. Now men like Martin Luther and later Isaac Watts and John and Charles Wesley saw this much differently, putting words of reflection upon the scriptures and setting them to music before the church. Now it's quite evident which tradition we have followed in. But one thing that all these men have in common is that the word of God and specifically the gospel is the content of and the center of our worship. There's also good reason here as we think about the parallels between our passage in Ephesians 5 to see singing as part of teaching and admonishment. It ties in with it quite well. Ephesians 5.19, Paul writes, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There the way the Christians are encouraged to address one another is by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This gives some added weight to what Gary and the worship leaders do for us week in and week out as they select texts, as they select songs for us to sing. As this singing is intimately connected to letting the word of Christ dwell within us. But lest we sit there and think, you know, man, I'm glad all the weight is on uh, Gary and the worship leaders. Let us also remember this is not just given to Gary and the worship leaders. Our wholehearted participation has something to do with this as well. We are singing primarily to God, but as we do, we encourage those around us to do the same with wholehearted sincerity. So we see there's a distinctive content for this worship, but there is also a distinctive manner. It is with thankfulness in your hearts. There's an intimate connection between grace and gratitude. As we see the grace of God to us in Christ, in His gospel, as we sing it over one another, we do it well only when our hearts respond in thanksgiving. Grace produces gratitude. As we reflect deeply upon this grace, we will worship with thankfulness to God. And it is here we see the distinctive object. We've seen a distinctive content, the Word of God, a distinctive manner that is with thankfulness, but it's to God. And you may say, well, that seems quite obvious, right? Well, our hearts are prone to set up and erect different idols, different objects of worship. So we, with thankfulness, receive God's word here that he put the two words in at the end of the sentence to God. And all of this being in the context of teaching admonishment, we should also note one final thing. Any study of God's word 
any reception of teaching or admonishment that falls short of thankfulness, that falls short of worship as a faulty response. Any reception of God's word any re- through teaching, admonishment, even singing that does not result in thankfulness to God, to heartfelt, sincere worship for what he has done for us in Christ is a faulty response. This has a word for our discipleship teachers and our care group leaders, our Bible study leaders. Do we see and understand this to be the proper end of our teaching? Are you seeking to lead your people not only to understand God's word, but to worship the God who has given it? Hearer of the word today and in each of these venues, do you realize that your hearing is incomplete if it stops short of reflecting on the grace of God and to thankfulness to him? Do you stop short in thanking your teacher? Do you stop short in thanking Brett and not give thanks to God for what he has done for you? So this gospel that has created us is to, cre- is to take up permanent residence within us and continually reform our worship and our fellowship together. But finally, we see that the word of Christ in the church glorifies God in the world. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The Word of Christ that has created the church and has continually reformed her fellowship leads her members to go into all of life scattering to the glory of God. Whatever you do in word or deed, this leaves nothing out. Paul even uses it in verse 23, addressing the lowest caste of society, slaves. Whatever you do, slave, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Assuming the work is not in direct opposition to God's moral law, there's no work or station in life too low in which to glorify God. Indeed, this is the end of all things. We hear this from the mouth of Jesus. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's no part of our life too mundane. There's no part of our life too insignificant or too common that it should not be done with the aim of God's glory in mind. In an excellent biography of Luther, Roland Bainton writes, Luther never tired of defending those callings, those vocations, 
which for one reason or another were disparaged. The mother was considered lower than the virgin or the nun. Luther replied that the mother exhibits the pattern of the love of God, now get this, which overcomes sins just as the mother's love overcomes dirty diapers. Gotta love Luther. The mother exhibits the pattern of the love of God, which overcomes sins just as her love overcomes dirty diapers. What Luther says here applies to us all. Son, you can mow the yard to God's glory. Daughter, you can glorify God in keeping your room clean. Is Emma in here? Janitor, you can sing Soli Deo Gloria even as you take the trash to the dumpster. Father, you can maintain your home doing those honeydew lists to God's glory. Mother, you can glorify God in preparing meals for your family. Pastor, you can sing Soli Deo Gloria as you administrate even the most mundane details of your week. Are you the new guy at work? You can cheerfully do the jobs no one else wants to do to God's glory. Are you a manager? You can glorify God by faithfully encouraging and mobilizing your employees to do good work. Perhaps you're unemployed. You can sing Soli Deo Gloria as you diligently search for new employment. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The word of Christ dwelling richly within us leads us into all of life to glorify God to live life to His glory alone. We see also here that living all of life is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every Christian is an ambassador. Every Christian is a representative. We might even say that every Christian is a portrait of Christ to the world. Believer, you are a living picture of the gospel. And while your baptism didn't save you, it unveiled the portrait of Christ in you to the world. You were baptized in his name. Romans 6 reminds us of this picture. Do, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This picture didn't stop when you went under the waters. It began. It is a living portrait walked into the new newness of life. In our actions and our words have consequences for the clarity of this portrait. 
the way we live, the way we speak, sharpens the lines, it saturates the hue, or it blurs them and diminishes the color. Well, ultimately, the point of this painting is God's glory, not ours. It is for people to see the portrait and give glory to Him, not to the portrait. So it is that all that we do, all of life, is lived in the name of the Lord Jesus. We do not draw the attention to ourselves, but rather magnify His great work of grace in us. Here again we find thankfulness at the end of our verse. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The worship of believers in the world is inaugurated by Jesus Christ. He has created us as sons and daughters of Him. He mediates our relationship to the Father, giving thanks to the Father through Him. He mediates our relationship to the world, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes this point. He stands... He says that Christ stands not only between God and the believer, but also between the believer and every relationship in the world. This means for us, there's no direct relationship to the world. We've lost that. Having been buried with Christ and raised with Him, Christ stands between us and the world. Neither company nor country, neither society or clan, neither parent nor child, neither sibling or spouse, stand between the Savior and the saint. Whether before God or before man, every relationship is mediated by Christ Jesus, the mediator. So the indwelling word of Christ in the church leads the church to glorify God in the world. Life lived through Christ shows Christ in the world and to the world. Through living portraits of God's grace, the world sees Christ and is called through them to repentance and belief, to marvel at the grace of God working itself out in us. Believer in Christ, members of Redeemer, Are you letting the word of Christ, the gospel, dwell in you richly? Are you giving it primary place above all other words? Do you see that the way in which you let this word indwell you in your prayer closet, on your sofa in the morning, or in other private places, do you see the way in which you let it have its work in you has a direct bearing on this body? You're not an insignificant part here. The command to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly was not just given to the leadership. It was given to you. And you have a role to play. 
Parents, are you letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Are you letting God's fatherly grace to you and continued discipline for your sake shape the way your discipline and instruction come across to your children? Is it informing their content? Are you wisely aiming for their hearts as God has aimed for yours? Are you aiming for their hearts full surrender to Christ and for maturity in Him? Or are you aiming for them just not to bother you right now? Singles, are you letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? Are you letting His Word lead you to hope in Christ and be faithful in all of your dealings? How are you using your freedom? Is it driven by this gospel that has saved you? Are you living to glorify God in that job that you don't see to be a long-term career? Husbands and wives, are you letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you? You're called to let your marriage signify the relationship between Christ and his church. Paul goes on to say, Love your wives, husbands, and do not be harsh with them. And wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. This is only possible insofar as we meditate deeply and let the word of the gospel, the word of Christ, dwell richly in us. Seminary student, are you letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Even in this season of life, are you reflecting the love of Christ for his church? This love is at the heart of the gospel. Do not neglect what Christ has loved unto death. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Elders, are you letting the word of Christ, the gospel of all hope, dwell in you richly? Has criticism left you numb? Has a particular situation let you disbelieve the faithfulness of your God in some way? If so, we love you and pray that you will be renewed once more in your gospel ministry. May the hope of our Savior fill you afresh this morning. Church, does the world in which we scatter Sunday after Sunday see the glory of God's grace working itself out even in the most mundane details of our days? Are we letting the word of Christ have its full effect in us through the world as we declare Christ explicitly to them and implicitly in all that we do. These applications are not designed to foster in us more self-will. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, let us welcome the Word of Christ by the work of the Spirit to have full control of our hearts this morning. Ultimately, the Word of Christ dwelling in us Richly is not about us being better church members, though it will lead to that. And ultimately, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly is not about us being better husbands, wives, fathers, sisters, brothers, managers, employees, though it will do that too. Ultimately, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly is about our worship. 
It is about the direction of our praise and thankful exaltation of a God who has saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Ultimately, letting the word of Christ, the gospel, dwell in us richly is about letting God's rich mercy and grace reform our hearts so that we see and savor Christ and call and encourage one another to do the same so that we might live all of life with the exclamation point, soli deo gloria, for his glory alone. Seeker here today, I've addressed the church in many ways, but do you know the God of all grace and comfort that we have spoken about here today? Do you know him through his one and only son, Jesus Christ? Do you know him through his cross? Do you know the forgiveness of God offered only in him? If not, we invite you today to know him. There will be, our elders will be up here on the front, and if you can find me, we'd love to talk to you and tell you how you can know this glorious gospel, the God of all comfort who has given us Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you gave your only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We thank you for publishing this news to us. We thank you for gathering and creating a church through this word. Father, we ask that you would cause our hearts to repent for having gone after other words, for having treasured other things. Father, forgive our fellowship here for being centered around other things other than you. Lead us to repentance, Lord. Help us to be all you intended us to be as your bride. Would that your word be at the center of all that we do here. Would that it would dwell richly within us. For we know it is Christ in us which is our hope of glory. Father, we pray for any that might have heard today your word proclaimed that do not know you pray that your word would come to them and that they would respond by your spirit in faith. Father, in all of this, we pray that you would be glorified in our congregation and in all of life's walks in which we are represented. Help us live all of life to your glory alone by your word and spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.